0: Welcome back to the Culture Blast podcast, a new series of deep dive interviews with personalities from the world of culture. I'm Farah Nayeri, and I'm a journalist and author based in London. In the first two episodes, I had the pleasure of interviewing Emma Thompson, the Oscar-winning actor and writer, and Niall Rogers, the Grammy Award-winning composer, producer, arranger, and guitarist. If you haven't heard those episodes, they're worth your time. I now bring you another superstar artist, Nan Golden, the American photographer and headline-grabbing activist. As Roberta Smith wrote of Nan in the New York Times, Nan is a kind of Piaf with a camera. And to have been one of her subjects must have been a little like having your own private paparazzo. Nan Golden, I'm delighted to welcome you as the very first visual artist on Culture Blast. You are my third guest after Emma Thompson and Niall Rogers. Now, that's a lineup I can live with.
1: (laughs) That's pretty impressive. (laughs) I'm proud to be in that lineup.
0: Yeah, and I'm certainly proud to have you. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation, Nan. Um, We're slowly emerging from a brutal pandemic that's left a few million people dead around the world. And stunted lives, careers, industries, economies, whole countries. How have these last fifteen months been for you?
1: I'm very aware of what it's like for other people, <clears throat> but for me it hasn't been difficult. I'm kind of a natural corn person who's been in self-imposed quarantine many times in my life. And I love you know, I love to be at home, I love to work. I love to watch movies. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of the time raising money for groups that were very badly impacted, and I became more politi- as uh, even more politically activized.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And somebody moved in with me. I've lived alone for twenty years, and someone came to interview me and never left. So that was a learning experience, and I photographed her extensively. I hadn't picked up a camera to photograph a person in years. So it actually inspired me in some ways. Right. But I was also terrified for the first few months. We were afraid to go out. The deli seemed like the pit of hell. So we were, you know, it was very scary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was scary for everyone all over. Um, So it's been a kind of interesting, productive time for you, paradoxically, uh, as you say, uh, picking up, you know, portraiture again. And you just opened an important show at the Marion Goodman Gallery in New York. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the show?
1: Yeah, it opened in London first in 2019. Mm -hmm. And then this was my first show in New York in five years. And It ended up being pretty much perfect, which I can't say for most of my exhibitions of my life. It includes new pieces and some of my earliest work. It includes work from 1972 and 2021. So I showed my portraits of my friend who moved in Mm -hmm. and quarantine pictures around my house. And I exhibited huge skies And then on another floor, I showed an analog version of my slideshow, The Other Side, which is a piece about trans people starting in the 70s up to 2010. It's my friends, and analog means that there were six projectors showing actual slides, which is very unusual now.
0: Yeah. And, and to talk about this, um, this friend who has now moved in, she's, she's young, I presume someone quite young, I think I've seen her photographed.
1: Yes, yeah, she's about 30. She's trans, a trans woman, and a writer, an excellent writer. And someone I didn't know until a few months before the pandemic. But I was very fortunate she moved in. I don't think I would have remained sane, if I had gone through that alone. And living with someone 30, in a way, it's a totally different stage of life. So I've learned a lot. I mean, without her, I would never have been able to be on Zoom, for instance. I'm a real ludite about computers. Mm -hmm. So she was my conduit to the virtual world. And she's taught me so much about the language of these times and the attitudes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. To go back to the 1980s, um, when you produced your masterwork, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, it started life as a slideshow that you would take around and project in various New York locations, and it was consisted of dozens of very in- intimate images of your lovers and closest friends. And these photos have a sincerity and a truth to them that it's a bit like watching life itself. And I've always wondered how you got the people in them to let you show these images, some of which you were in, and some of which involve copulation, masturbation, urination, you know, bodily functions that are usually really kept off camera.
1: That's part of the point of it is to break through those taboos of what can be shown. And it's actually 690 pictures Mm -hmm. that play. it plays for 45 minutes. Right. And it traces coupling from the myth of happy coupling through all the manifestations of gender and drugs and sex and ends up with alienated couples. Right. And <laughs> and then death where people are actually buried together. Right. In graveyards around the world. The pictures are not just the New York, quote, subculture. They're also from Europe, all over Europe. hmm And... Including London, Mm -hmm. and I took them over ten years, I guess. But I constantly update and re-edit the slideshow, even to pictures into the two thousands. People, I didn't get people to let me photograph them or let me show them. These were real relationships. Yeah, I was never outside. I was living this life, and I never photographed anyone. Doing something I didn't photograph myself doing. Mm -hmm. And so there was a trust. And by and large, the people have been pleased or happy or okay about being included over all these years. Right. People look, you know, people are more revisionist than I am often. And I have to respect that.
0: What do you mean by revisionist?
1: Well, I never changed. The facts are the feelings of my life as I've lived it. And a lot of my work was about fighting against the kind of revisionism that suburban families imposed in the 60s when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they still do. That didn't happen. You didn't see that. They didn't say that. This constant negation or questioning of my reality... So that's what I think the first motivation of me photographing was, to make a record nobody could revise. Right. But uh, other people in the pictures, their lives change. They have children. They get straight jobs. They may not want to be shown in that light anymore or shown doing things so personal.
0: But they're in your ballad, so they can't be taken out, right? Right.
1: By and large, and what like I said, most people are, are happy about being in the ballad.
0: I mean your whole um message in in, in what you just described is to stop people from portraying life as this picture postcard thing, you know, this, this this prettified um spectacle, right? You just show life the way it really is. You show the whole trajectory of life in the ballad. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. It it goes from joy to um, darkness and back again. And yes, it's, it's tracing what it, real lives look like and real experiences look like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And some of your most beautiful portraits ever are of close friends who were members of the trans community or drag queens, as you refer to them. And these photographs were taken at a time when society was far less accepting of, of them. And do you think that we're living today in a more tolerant, enlightened, accepting and empathetic world in that respect, or is it just surface stuff?
1: My friends in the 70s couldn't even go outside in the daytime. They were the real pioneers of this. And unfortunately, <clears throat> many young people don't know the history And they don't know how they got here. Mm -hmm. But it's true that it's become much more societally acceptable to be trans. There's a new language around it. People don't call themselves drag queens anymore, except my old friends are still proud to be called drag queens. Mm -hmm. It's a word of homage.
0: But do you think that mentalities have, have evolved? I mean, it sounds like they have, right?
1: I guess so. I also see this as a very conservative time. People don't swear. People are polite. Young people, I'm talking about. Right. Gener- generations after me. They're very correct in their behavior. No one's ever late. <laughs> you know, it's not the way that I came up and it's not the way the language of my friends. Mm-hmm. So I see it actually as a, a pretty regressive time on many levels. Right. And guarded, right? And the words, you know, that. Words matter more than intention is a problem for me. Right. Because, you know, you have to figure out who's on your side. And even if they're not exactly the way you would have written them to be, you know, we need to stick together. And so, therefore,
0: some of this respect that is being shown and empathy towards um, communities that were mistreated in the past is not genuine or is perhaps superficial?
1: I think it's genuine. I think there's been a real sea change in the way society accepts trans people. Right. Um, I think the communities of color are fighting for their lives and fighting to be recognized and respected. But that's a different story. I think. I I think empathy. I don't know if the world has become more empathic. I don't know that the world has become a brighter color. Mm -hmm. But I think that on this level, there is more genuine acceptance, at least in the bubble that I live in, in New York City. Right. (laughs) New York City is not representative of the rest of the country.
0: No, no, it really isn't. Um, As human beings, we're all defined by our traumas, specifically childhood ones, and yours happened when you were 11 and your older sister Barbara took her own life. Uh, because your own memories of your sister were somewhat limited, you swore never to lose the real memory of anyone again, and you captured the present with the camera. Memory is still an evanescent thing, and I just wonder how much have you really captured of the many loved ones uh, you've lost ever since.
1: Uh, I've, I've captured the friends of mine that died and even though photography shows me the limits of what can be sustained when somebody's gone how much the memory is real, the smell of someone, the voice of someone is not in and so there's not the same kind of visceral memory of someone but I think that My friends who died mainly of AIDS in the 80s and early 90s, I think that they're also alive because of the pictures.
2: Mm.
1: People know a lot about them. For instance, Cookie Mueller and Greer Langton, I've helped to maintain their legacy as great artists. And I think sometimes when I'm working on images of my friends who died, I think they're really not dead. They're with me.
0: Right. Absolutely. You also said something really moving. You, um, I heard you or read you somewhere say uh, that when someone commits suicide, more than one person dies. And I found that really powerful.
1: I think that's true. I think that it traumatizes entire structures like families and that trauma never goes away. I think, yeah, for parents, it's, right. you know, unbearable. Mm-hmm. But also, everyone around wonders, everyone around carries guilt around it about what they could have done that that wouldn't have happened. Right. So yeah, I think to some extent, it kills something in everyone around. And it's one of my traumas that I've carried that's defined me. There's sort of life before and after a number of things in my life, and that's one of them. Oh, for sure. But I've been very open about my life. I mean, more so than most people. And as an artist, all of my work starts at the point of myself. Unfortunately, I'm not very, I don't have a huge uh, amount of ideas that aren't based around myself. I'm not not very imaginative, I guess. It's all coming from me.
0: Talking about other Types of trauma, perhaps not as powerful. But still, I heard you say in a panel talk that you were treated horribly by men, and that was your description, and that you were somehow an example of uh, hashtag Me Too. Uh, In one of your most famous pictures, um, you are shown with seriously puffy black eyes after suffering abuse at at the hands of of a boyfriend. And this injury was so bad that they really had to stitch your eye back up because it was really in danger of, of becoming dislodged. And I just wondered if you could talk about this ill treatment in general and, and broadening this question. Why do so many great female artists end up with abusive male partners? Because there are many.
1: Huh. I didn't really know that. I went to the Alice Neel show yesterday. She's a great painter mm-hmm. who started in the 30s all the way up to the 80s and very radical. Mm-hmm. And I learned that one of her lovers destroyed hundreds of her paintings and drawings during a fight, which is e- extreme abuse. And so I think if you dig into the history of many women, not just artists, you find abuse. Right. I, I think if I, you know, if Me Too existed, At my time, I could have too'd most of the men I met. (laughs) I mean, men got away with everything. The idea that you could call someone out for being overly tactile wasn't an option. I mean, you know, men were hideous to me at times.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, because you are someone um, powerful and strong with a great deal of willpower and a sense of self and why do you and so many other women of the time, I mean, pretty much all these women, um, put up with this, do you think?
1: Well, that was our time. We didn't, you know, there was no option. We didn't know that that this was, in a way, we didn't even know that this was wrong. I mean, men forced sex on me, and that didn't seem a problem
2: mm-hmm.
1: unless it was, you know, a stranger raping you. But... It was um, clear. There was no other conversation. This was the way it was, that men could... Uh, I mean, I slept with most of my teachers, which now would be radically disapproved of. And, but in terms of my abuse, like I said, it was normal. And we didn't really think of calling men out on it. And then my boyfriend who battered me, he battered me very severely after a fight. And part of the reason I took that picture was so that I wouldn't go back with him. Oh, okay. Because most women go back, and somehow by making it public, it didn't allow me to go back. Wow, okay. And I've met women all over the world who've told me, this because I show that picture, wherever I was traveling and showing it, In the old days, I traveled all over Europe and America with my slideshow. Yeah. And many, many women came to me and told me about their experiences. And other women told me they started photographing the same thing. So it was very empowering to other people.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I I, I was not aware of that.
1: And basically, my work is about trying to um, break stigma.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: very much so. I mean, my drug use. um, I just came out in my new afterword for the ballad that I was a sex worker in the 70s, something. This is the first time I'm saying that publicly. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So can you tell me just a little bit more about being a sex worker in the 70s and why you've only now told the world about it?
1: My work has already been viewed through a Constructive um, drugs and sex. It's very reductive the way most people write about it. And I feel like I'm, I was already viewed as a drug addict, a so-called junkie in the old terminology. Mm-hmm. And then this would put me out as a quote in the old language, a whore. Mm-hmm. And that would give people a way to judge me and judge everything I'd done through that veil. Right. And so I didn't want to give the world that. And we all need to have a secret.
0: Absolutely. And so this, was it for, um, to earn a living, or was it something that you wanted to experiment, or, you know, I mean, I'm
1: just curious. No, it was to earn a living. Okay. It's not not something you lightly experiment with.
0: And I imagine it, it was a difficult experience for you. Is it difficult
1: Extremely difficult. I think sex work is the hardest work in the world. Mm. And sex workers should be given ultimate respect for that.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Nan. I appreciate it.
1: Um, I appreciate your candor. Uh, And um, to get back to the subject... That's my middle name. That's (laughs) what I'm known for. I mean, I don't think I could have made the ballot without those several years of sex work. It paid for my film... It paid for the you know have been paid for my work
0: mm, I see. um to go get back to the subject of of men uh, professionally, at the start of your career, I think male photographers were very turfy around you, and they couldn't really accept the fact that a woman could be a great photographer, uh, you have said. and as you said, they would always talk about their equipment.
1: <laughs> yeah, truly, <laughs> I think they still do. Men love their equipment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they would tell me that there was no such thing as a good woman photographer. Even through the 80s, people would say that to me. And they dissuaded me on every level. Right. Uh, they, you know, they would say if we knew people like that, we'd have good pictures too. They would say, you know, you slept with all your teachers. That's why you got successful. I mean, anything to kind of put me in my place.
0: But how could they motivate their their saying that women couldn't be good photographers? I mean, what was their reason for saying that?
1: Well, since there's a history of women photographers, they absolutely didn't know their history.
0: No, that's true. Um, We live in a world where human beings are, as you know, more connected than ever through technology and the Internet. Say I want to contact a particular friend, I can do it in seven or eight different ways via this messenger, Facebook, Instagram, you know, phone, WhatsApp, whatever. And yet human beings couldn't be farther apart as far as I can see. You know, they have a hard time finding friends, partners, love, compassion, empathy. Can I get you to explain this paradox?
1: I wish I could, but what I can say is my opinion that I think it's basically... Done enormous damage to people, to their ability to relate to each other, to their sense of reality, to their curiosity. There's You don't have to be curious because you can look something up in a minute. I think all of this has done real harm to the world. But it's also a way that people don't really know what sex is. They don't know. I mean, I think people are much lonelier now than ever. I mean, we had to work We had to work to find each other in the old days. I mean, answering machines were a big invention in the 80s. And now people don't even recognize the voice of an answering machine tape. When I used it in my new piece, they didn't even know what that sound was. Right. So it's, and I see so many children playing with iPads, or parents just handing them the phone to keep them quiet. So they're growing up with their thumb on the button. And I, it's very scary about the future. And I think the pandemic has allowed AI to to uh, really take over, start to really take over with Zoom. Right. And, yeah, it's increasingly powerful to an enormous degree because of the pandemic.
0: I was hoping the pandemic was going to bring people together, but
1: obviously not much. Yeah, for a minute it seemed like that. Right. People were reaching out to help each other. They were bringing food to each other. There was a great concern for each other at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that didn't seem to prevail at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I am going to ask you about one particular social media platform. Uh, You'll probably hate me for saying this, but I think you're one of the godparents of Instagram.
1: (laughs) So I've been told many times. (laughs) uh, It's not my greatest... Honor of my life yeah i I can see how it there was some influence yeah uh, from Instagram people started photographing their own lives, but it's become so it's so superficial and self involved and I don't think it 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 doesn't in any way have anything to do with the motivation or depth of my work right and I didn't even know there was Instagram until a couple years ago. I was truly uh, non-tech. And I I posted something one day, and in three seconds... Oh, no, in half a second, three people liked it. (laughs) And I found that terrifying. (laughs) Absolutely terrifying. And people don't know how to look anymore, which is really sad. When I've shown people my paintings that I had on my phone, they look through them in, in literally half a second and think they've seen it. Right. And so I, I think all, all those things have really hurt. Yeah. And on the other hand, I see I have a friend whose husband died during COVID, and he posts every day pictures of his home without his husband, the items of his husband's that bring him real pain. And uh, many, many people have reached out to him to give him empathy, to show him empathy and shared their own experiences. So that's the positive thing I've seen from Instagram.
0: Right. But in general, you say people photograph their food, they photograph uh, the shop they're in and stuff like that, and that's what you find very distant from what you did,
1: you know. Yeah, I wouldn't mind photographing my food. It just never occurred to me. But yeah, I think it's my work was not about a superficial need to share every experience I was having.
0: Right. And you've also said that it's not really about memory, that, that you were trying to capture the present and capture memory in a way, a memory of the moment, but that the notion of memory is, not, is kind of divorced from Instagram.
1: Ah, that's true. People don't need to remember anything. Right. It's the same as Google, all those platforms, you don't need to remember anything because the information is immediately available to you. And the same with, I mean, things that happened yesterday have become so old news. They don't, nothing is carried over from day to day.
0: Let's move on to the second part of this podcast, the part about your activism. That's how I know you, Nan. I interviewed you for my book, Takedown, which comes out in January in North America. It's all about art and power, and it has a chapter on money and museum funding. So to go back to the origins of your activism, in 2014, you developed severe tendinitis in your wrist, and for pain relief, you were given OxyContin, which you knew was addictive, Um, It felt, as you told the author Patrick Radden Keefe in his new book, Empire of Pain, like a padding between you and the world. So you went from two pills a day, obviously gradually, to 16 pills a day, and you moved back to New York, and you kept getting prescriptions from doctors, etc., until those stopped, and then you suffered terrible withdrawal, And um, one night you bought a batch uh, of drugs that you overdosed on, and uh, thank goodness you did not pass away, but you survived and and you went to an expensive rehab place, but you realized that hundreds of thousands of Americans were experiencing prescription opioid-related deaths. Then in the fall of 2017, you read an article by Patrick in The New Yorker, which showed that the family that owned the maker of OxyContin were the Sacklers whose name was on so many museums and cultural institutions as benefactors and philanthropists. I'd like uh, you to describe, please, Nan, the experience of uh, that realization of reading that article.
1: I knew the Sackler name from going to museums since I was a child, so Mm -hmm. I was shocked when I read Patrick's article. I was standing in an airport on my way to Brazil to give a speech, and the first thing I said is they live in their museums. That's where I'm going to get their ear and where I'm going to call them out. So in Brazil, I announced that to an audience and a streaming platform of several thousand people. So then I realized I had to do it. I mean, sometimes you have ideas and you don't, but this became concrete when I announced it. Right. And so I went back to New York and... Tried to figure out how to, to call them out. And the first thing I did was publish a portfolio, an art form, right. of pictures of myself, hi, of my drugs. And interspersed were the Sackler names on museums, all over America and, and London, actually. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a text talking about starting a group. And so that was my first announcement of it. So that was the beginning of calling for action. And I managed to rope in my friends and assistants and activists I knew into coming to my living room. And the meetings until the pandemic were in my living room every week.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And we came up with the name Pain Prescription Addiction Intervention Now Mm -hmm. because someone was visiting from another group called the Illuminator's And she was a Scrabble fanatic, so she was able to come up with that very quickly. (laughs) So that became the name Pain. I see. And it grew from a few people to 20 people at a meeting. But there's a core group of only about a dozen of us.
0: Yeah, and and can you take us back to your first spectacular museum action in March 2018 when you walked into the Metropolitan Museum looking like an ordinary visitor and then you headed for the Sackler Wing and the Temple of Dendur. Can you describe what you did then?
1: We had brought in hundreds of fake prescription bottles that one of our group, who's a designer, had made that said, prescribed to you by the Sacklers, Filled by Purdue Pharma, side effect death. It was an exact replica of a pill bottle with these labels on it. So we snuck hundreds in. We threw them on a queue. We threw them into the water of uh, the Temple of Dender, has a river that I guess is the Nile, mm-hmm. because it's an old Egyptian temple that was brought over right. by Arthur Sackler. And there were a thousand bottles in the water, and then we did a die-in and the thing explain what a diet what's a die-in? It's when you lie down and represent the bodies that have been killed right and it started an act up, which was my real guiding force I, I had involved I had been involved in act up I had already been an activist during the AIDS period mm hmm So that had, and my work was always seen as political, even before that. Yeah. As the politics of gender and visibility. Right. And, but this was my first direct action since ACT UP. And I always do these actions where the public can get involved, because I think that's very important. The young people in my group understood the media, and I understood the public. Yeah. And so there were hundreds of people got involved get involved in our actions.
0: Right. Um you know you you've staged similar spectacular actions at the Guggenheim in New York at the Louvre in Paris. I just wondered what you think your activism has achieved. What it looks like to me is that certainly the you know, uh, presence and uh, participation of a prominent photographer and artist has brought a lot of attention to this campaign, that the naming and shaming of the Sacklers has been predominantly led by you and, of course, now also led by Patrick in his book, you know, that there's been this confluence of the two of you um, acting against them. I don't know whether you agree with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his book was my first inspiration, so I've always given credit to the journalists. You mean his article
0: in The New Yorker?
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I worked in tandem to him. As he said, and another journalist who wrote in Esquire at the same time, their articles had a certain impact, and then the impact died out, and then I brought it to the streets. Got it. And with my loud voice, I managed to engage the public into understanding that the Sackler name is not the name of philanthropists, but it's synonymous with the opioid crisis. Right. So their reputation was extremely important to them. And that's what I affected, we affected as a group.
0: Right. The Sackler name is starting to be taken off certain institutions, but it's still up at certain others. I mean, what is your activism achieving and is there anything happening now that that you can tell us about?
1: We've been in bankruptcy court for the last year, starting during the pandemic. The Sackler's company, Purdue Pharma, declared bankruptcy and the judge actually put a stay of litigation on the Sackler family, even though they're not bankrupt, which seems like very questionable justice, mm-hmm. justice for the rich. So we started an ad hoc committee. It's me and five parents who've lost their children to oxycontin and we actually managed to make a noise in court. My lawyer is a member of PAIN, and he's a real activist, and he's actually filed motions that bring... The victims into the court that bring the reality into the court, which is not usually in bankruptcy court. One of the members of my group, Harry, filed a motion to get the deadline extended for people to file claims against the Sacklers, and he managed to uh, to prevail in that in that case. So we've been in the court for a year, and now. It's coming to the point of a settlement that looks really horrible.
0: To broaden the discussion a bit, um, how do you see the future of arts philanthropy, cultural philanthropy? Because, as you know, all big money is dirty on some level. And yet museums, especially in the U.S., where there's not a lot of government help, need philanthropy to keep afloat. So how do you resolve that quandary?
1: That's the big question. I mean, there's no public funding in America museums like there is in Europe. None. Right. So they mm-hmm. need rich people. And like you said, almost all billions are ill-gotten at the expense of people. But I think there is levels of evil. 500,000 people have died from overdose and 80% of those were started with prescription opioids. And then I, uh, there are some ethical philanthropists in this world they're rare, but there are some. And I think museums have to vet where the money's coming from. Yeah. Actually, it was in London where the sack, where pain really had its first influence, when the National Portrait Gallery refused a million dollars, when I announced to the press that I would cancel the retrospective plan there if they took the money. And then they didn't take the money, and then it had a domino effect. The tape, the Guggenheim, and eventually the Met have all stopped taking funding from the Sacklers. And now that's true in institutions worldwide.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wondered, Nan, how you separate your art and your activism nowadays, or was your art and your photography always activist on some level?
1: Yeah, it was always political on some level. And... I don't make a separation. I mean, for the first year or two when I got out of the clinic, that was my practice. And then I started making, quote, art again. But my last pieces are about addiction, and one is about the pleasure of drugs, and the other is about the darkness of addiction. So the work continues to address that.
0: And I I find that really brave, you know, the way you say that you never want to avoid pain. Most human beings go through their life trying to avoid pain or even getting even close to pain. You say the only way you get through it is by walking through the most scary and the most painful events. How do you explain this courage that you have, which really is uh, quite remarkable?
1: I don't think I would have survived without that courage. It's a survival technique Mm -hmm. that you, I think I've always had to do that. And so it's part of my character. Right. I know it's unusual.
0: Yeah, I mean, to go walk right into pain and and to embrace it is extremely unusual. The rest of us are running away from it all the time.
1: I'm not walking towards it, I'm just accepting it when it walks towards me.
0: Well said, Nan. Um, so, final question. Can you fill us in a little bit about what your next big projects are? You mentioned a National Portrait Gallery show coming up. You know, what's on your radar?
1: Actually, the retrospective is starting in Sweden in 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a village of slideshows. Oh. I'm being presented as a filmmaker in terms of my slideshows. And that's what the traveling show will be based on. And I'm very excited about that. And also we're working on drug policies and safe consumption sites and harm reduction here in America.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very important project as well. Yes. Well, Nan Golden, thank you so much for being the guest of Culture Blast. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you.
1: Thank you, Farah. You really know your shit. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Nan. Take care. Thank you. Thank you to Nan Golden for joining me on my third episode of Culture Blast, a series of deep dive interviews with personalities from the world of culture. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And my special thanks go to the two people who have made this podcast possible, the great Karina Pierre-Rochard, executive producer of the series, and the talented Ben Eshmade, our producer. I look forward to you joining my next conversation.